listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10. That's jdp one zero and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our new sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking. They help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, these small notebooks are great for taking notes while listening, and you can refer back to them later. I've been using their products now for over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, for $10 off your first purchase. So if you enjoy the program, go check out what they have to offer. Today on the show, we have Brad Cornell. Brad is a managing director at Berkeley Research Group, Emeritus Professor of Finance at the Anderson Graduate School of Management at UCLA and a Senior Advisor at Cornell Capital Group. He has an AB in Physics, Philosophy, and Psychology, as well as a Master's in Statistics and a PhD in Financial Economics, all from Stanford University. Enjoy my conversation with Brad Cornell. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Well, it's great having you on. Uh, so typically, I first start off with the guests talking about going back to 2008 and what you're doing during the global financial crisis. Always a really interesting question to help frame conversations. So uh, what were you doing back then? Well, two things. I was a professor at UCLA. Uh, I was serving as a financial expert for firms that got in trouble during the crisis. And I was buying every stock that I could. I thought it was the, in the 35 years I'd been an investor up to that time at the end of 2008, beginning of 2009, it was one of the best investment environments I'd ever seen because you, you could buy a lot of things very cheaply. It's kind of the reverse of what we have today. I think today's one of the worst investment env- environments I've ever seen, though it got a little better today. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I think PE ratio on the S&P got down to single digits during that time uh, over 10 years ago, something like nine, you know, something under 10 there. So that's really interesting also how you were advising firms being in that type of a role during that really tumultuous time. So the reason I brought you on, Brad, is I saw your article written up here, an institutional investor from your paper, Medallion Fund, the ultimate counterexample. And in the paper, you raise questions about Renaissance technologies, sometimes referred to as Rentex flagship fund, and how they could produce 66% gross return since inception. And the paper here I see was reviewed by Rob Arnott, Ken, Ken French, among others. What was your first reaction when you were able to see the performance released in um, Zuckerman's book? Well, at first I thought it was a typo. (laughs) It was just, you know, I've been writing about financial performance for about 40 years now. And I've read thousands of papers on the subject written by scholars, practitioners, investment advisors, and so forth. And I'd never seen any performance over any substantial period of time remarkably as good as that. And so I was absolutely stunned. Yeah, and you bring up the fact in your paper how the returns during the dot-com crash and the financial crisis were over 56% and over 74% respectively. So did you gain any insight from the returns being even more robust during those crisis periods? Well, the the insight I took from that was that their performance cannot be interpreted as a risk premium, because if if it's a typical risk premium, then during bad times, like if you're just leveraging the market a lot, then during good times, you make a fortune, but during bad times, you get killed. And these guys made a fortune during good times, and during bad times, they made another fortune. So it's it wasn't a risk premium. Whatever it was, it was something that I didn't understand. Right. And in the paper, you talk a little bit about factors, and obviously, uh, Falma and French have done a lot of work there with a three-factor model and going back to the roots of dimensional fund advisors. You talk a little bit about, you know, despite the remarkable performance, the fund's market beta and factor loadings were negative. Can you talk a little bit about how to interpret that for someone who is a little bit unclear on the technicalities there? Well, the the basic idea there is that these factor loadings are like magnification factors. When things go well, it magnifies the good. When things go bad, it magnifies the bad. And that's where the risk comes from. And there can be risk being exposed to the market or risk being exposed to what Fahman and French call the value factor and so forth. And most securities are positively related to those factors and therefore have factor risk. I thought, well, maybe Medallion Fund does. It doesn't. It looks more like an insurance policy than it does like a risky security, which makes it all the more remarkable that the returns are so big. Yeah. And, the, and in recent times, there's there've been more updates, I guess, to the three-factor model or more research as far as momentum being recognized, I believe, by Fama and French. Is that, 
is that something where that's still considered to be a factor, the momentum type uh, trade? Well, I didn't want to get this paper into you know the, the massive dispute about what the right factors are. As, as Campbell Harvey, who's a guy I uh, referred in, uh, the people at an institutional investor to, to, to weigh in with his opinion, he's documented something like 300 factors that have been identified as risk factors. Wow. And I, I could have done more. I did a few back-of-the-envelope calculations. The fact is that if you have these consistent high year-by-year returns every year, you're not going to correlate with any risk factor to speak of. And- yeah. Yeah. And, and you bring up also the transaction fees because the first thing that came to my mind is, you know, this strategy potentially taking thousands and thousands of small bets throughout the trading day, immediately I was thinking about transaction fees. And of course, when you look at CAPM and certain other models, they have a an assumption where there are no transaction fees. But this is a real-life like strategy, right? So is that something that, that you thought about as well? Yeah, that's something I actually spoke with Professor French about. Uh, mm-hmm. He and I were colleagues long ago at UCLA. And, and I asked, you know, because he's been with Dimensional Fund Advisors, and I asked him, how he thought this was possible. And he thought that they could be some very sophisticated market maker, taking, as you said, thousands upon thousands of positions, making a little bit uh, on a majority of them, and thereby, over the course of time, like, like the casinos in Las Vegas, turning into a consistent winner. I don't see how they could do that, but if they could do that, they'd have to have a way of controlling the transactions costs of being the most efficient trader that's ever come down the pike. Yeah. And what I thought about is in that same analogy of kind of like a casino. So there's been documented cases of let's take blackjack where your the house has, I think it's a two, two to 3% edge, but over time, you know, it's, it's, quite large and you can actually shift the odds in your favor with things like card counting but it's really more like shifting the odds two or three percent kind of in your favor still so there's a lot of variance there but you know it can pay off over the long term and then the other example i was thinking about is professional (laughs) i hate to use the word professional sports gamblers but someone who's betting on sports, you have to have that at least 53%, 53 to 55% win rate, something like that to be profitable, which is nearly impossible. There may be only a few cases of that documented and it's hard to audit the, the track records. But what got brought up in your paper is maybe they're actually only right 52, 53% of the time. That's what uh, Zuckerman said in the book, quoting a uh, I think it was Mercer, one of the senior people. At- oh, that's right. Yeah. And if that were true, then you've got to have tiny transactions costs. Otherwise, you're exactly right. You'll you'll be eaten up by the transactions costs over millions of trades. Yeah. And at the end of the paper here, you talk about the uh, Mickelson-Morley level challenge. Talk about that a little bit, because um, I had never come across that before I'd seen it there. Okay, well, I, I I was a physics student as an undergraduate, and Mickelson Morley did a very famous experiment that showed that the speed of light was constant, no matter how fast you were moving. 
And this mm -hmm. totally undid Newtonian physics and led to Albert Einstein's breakthroughs. So it was an experiment that showed that the existing theory was fundamentally wrong. And the existing theory that I have in mind here is market efficiency. Mm -hmm. and there is no way in an efficient market or even a relatively efficient market that someone could achieve the, the performance that the medallion fund did. So somehow uh, they uncovered a meaningful, a very meaningful Mickelson Morley level market inefficiency. Yeah, that's really interesting. The other thing you talk about is them capping the size there at once it grew to about 10 billion. And often with hedge funds, the larger they grow, it's much harder to achieve alpha and you know outperform the market on a risk adjusted basis but even at 10 billion that's quite a large size for most strategies you know you're looking at maybe in the 100 million or less or some small amount to be able to add alpha let's say in a value investing strategy or something like that looking at smaller cap stocks what's your view on the 10 billion size for this type of a strategy maybe it does make sense well, if they were doing enough trades, if they were doing millions of trades over you know relatively short periods, like the book seems to indicate, you probably could scale that up to close to ten billion. Certainly, not much more. Uh, you know, with returns like theirs, uh, if you'd started with a reasonable nest egg like ten million, ten million would have grown into the trillions. You would have taken over the whole market, which is basically physically impossible. So they mm -hmm. clearly had to, to limit the size somewhat. And apparently, you know, in the in the one to 10 billion range, they were still able to maintain those returns. Yeah. And you talk a little bit about the two other funds that launched. Obviously, Medallion has been closed for many, many years running an employee owned money. But the other two funds, the performance maybe while strong is still more in line with what you might might expect. Did you have any thoughts on, on the, the difference between Medallion and the other two funds at all? Well, since I don't know, because it's totally secret, what Medallion does, I yeah. really can't say. Yeah. But the other funds, yeah, are, they're good funds, but they're nothing surprising. There's no Mickelson-Morley with those yeah. other funds. They're just good funds. It, it's hard to, to not exaggerate how extremely good medallion's performance was it's like i said in the paper it's like the sun rising in the west <laughs> yeah and, and throughout your years of as you said many many thousands of papers that you've read on the subject and looking at investment performance typically i think people look at value investing as being able to add sufficient or you know a pretty surprising amount of alpha over time let's say between 15 and 20 percent maybe annualized for certain value managers is that kind of in line with what your experiences have been or like is there any type of comparison here i know it's a completely different strategy but well i, th I think even 15 to 20 is far exaggerate it's what value mm -hmm. managers get if you don't cherry pick you know look back Mm -hmm. Pick the ones that did the best. The value mm -hmm. strategy looked at over long periods of time for indexes is more like two to three. And in the last 12 years, the value strategy has significantly underperformed. So you can see there's real risk with that strategy. This thing never underperformed. 
Yeah. Not even close. So it's in my mind, it's a very different animal. Yeah. Yeah. I think also when you look at strategies, whether it's doing option selling or some type of strategy where you're collecting a small premium, sometimes those strategies can be really profitable over time, collecting maybe 1% a month or whatever the amount is. And then the strategy just blows up. One example is long-term capital management, the difference between the -the off-the-run treasuries and on-the-run. And obviously, those trades were profitable, but they had to wait for those um, spreads to converge, which took much longer than, you know, once considered. But is that typically what you would expect from a strategy where they're trying to, like, pick up nickels in front of a steamroller type of thing? Yeah, the the, the folks at... uh long-term capital were all friends of mine and still are many of them. And I was well aware of their strategies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, you can call, they didn't think the steamroller was coming. That shocked them. But, but yes, there's a lot of strategies like that. And obvious one is to write put options just out of the money on the stock market. Mm-hmm. As long as the stock market continues to go up or just doesn't go down much, you just collect the premiums. And then suddenly you have a day more like today where the, the Dow was off over 600, and then you lose a lot. And, and I, I, of course, thought maybe Medallion would have something like that. That's one of the most remarkable things. They don't, even during the financial crisis or the dot-com crash. They don't have anything remotely like that. As you pointed out earlier, their returns are on the order of 50% or more during the worst times. Yeah, yeah, and... um you know, when you go back to James Simon's history and look at, uh, you know, some of the code breaking and the mathematics, it's it's easy to understand, like, why someone like him and obviously the team he built could maybe be capable of, of something like this. But... You know, on the other hand, there's there's all these other f- reasons of why it's just see- nearly impossible. Um, and, and it looks like they only had the one negative year. Of- now that was the first year out the shoot, as I recall. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking here. It was uh, right here in um, 1998. They started or first reported year here with a little over nine percent, and then 1989 a negative. Uh, 3.20%. And then that was the the only negative year. After that, I don't think they even produced less than a 20% uh, return in in any any single year. So after going through and talking to, like you mentioned, your colleagues and other, you know, esteemed professors, are there any other thoughts that, that you had that you that didn't get put into the paper or anything else that, you know, comes to mind? Well, some professors suggested, well, maybe they had inside information. Mm-hmm. But I even said, even if you had inside information, I don't think you could achieve those sort of returns, because mm-hmm. there isn't that much inside information. You no, know, it comes and goes on Maybe there's going to be a transaction and something leaks and so forth. But you, there is an inside information on thousands of trades every day. Yeah, so it, not with that type of strategy. Yeah, it, it just it, that just doesn't wash. So I don't think anyone, even the Nobel Prize winners like Eugene Fama, have an explanation for this. That's why I call it the ultimate counterexample. 
Yeah, and is there any type of uh, issue with these returns that are reported? Because obviously, well, first off, I'm not suggesting that these returns are false. And second off, there'd be no reason to lie about this because... Or, or create any misrepresentation. But on the other hand, this fund is not subject to SEC um, guidelines, I believe, since it's uh, they're only running internal money. Is there any, sometimes it's hard to get clarity as far as like which prime brokers they're using and kind of dig into a lot more due diligence because there are no outside investors. Are there any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, and this is something that some you know professors and I discussed. Maybe mm-hmm. the returns just aren't real. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it, always a possibility. It's, it, it's just such a great story that the returns were really good, but not as good as the book said. And yeah. since, since the the size of the fund was limited, it could be that they had more money in to begin and less in the way of returns. And there's no way I would know that. Yeah. And, and throughout your research, did you t- talk to or do any research on some of these new or newer firms so, like a DRW, Jane Street? And obviously with these firms, there are so many different strategies. Some are strictly doing market making. Some are actually like buying large blocks of stock for some someone like CalPERS. Let's say they want to get into Apple. Some make markets in ETFs, so you kind of have a lot of different, you know, strategies and different types of firms. But well, I've seen papers researching those. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard for scholars to study them because the data are not objective and reliable the way you can get, you know, with a publicly traded, you know, mutual fund that has to report to the SEC, for example. Uh, but even then. I haven't seen any papers looking at those type of firms that see anything remarkably close to Medallion's reported returns. Yeah. And I think when you look at most or almost all of those type of shops are prop shops. So again, you're not going to be able to get insight or any regulatory information or filings <laughs> to be able to dig in there. The only one that might come to mind is something like a DE Shaw um, that has a long history and and even with them, the returns are nothing close to what Medallion has reported. Is that right? That's right. I mean, D.E. and D.E. Shaw is one of the most famous. You're looking back, you know, you're saying, yeah. uh, now that the now that the Super Bowl has been played, I, I'm going <laughs> to take the Chiefs. Well, yeah, after the game's over, whoever won probably did pretty well. And D.E. Shaw was a winner. But even so, even with all that you know, biased looking back and cherry picking, you still don't come close. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And remember in the paper, one thing I did was I said, assume that every month I knew whether the market was going to beat treasury bills or not every single Mm -hmm. month. Mm -hmm. And if the market was going to beat it, like God had told me, I went into the market. And if treasury bills were going to beat it because the market was down or flat, I stayed in treasury bills. So I had perfect hindsight. Even with that, I don't come close to matching what Medallion did. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And I think in closing, talking a little bit about the efficient market hypothesis and kind of the, uh, the 
school of thought from DFA and in Fama French. I think Howard Marks put it best. He graduated from Penn and then also uh, went to uh, University of Chicago. So he got a little bit of both. <laughs> Um, and so I think when, depending on what asset class you're looking at, whether it's emerging markets or small caps, you know, there can be some inefficiencies. If you're looking at large caps, it's, you know, very efficient. And as you mentioned, when you look at, uh, back 10 years ago during the global financial crisis, you were buying and you felt that, you know, it was a great time to buy equities. And now we're <laughs> at stretch valuations, no matter hardly which metric you look at. Where do you come down on the efficient market hypothesis kind of debate? Well, my sons have a, a small investment advisory firm, Cornell mm-hmm. Capital. And, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't have such a firm if we thought the market was perfectly efficient. We, we do think there are inefficiencies. For example, we, we didn't have the firm back then, but uh, we felt that the prices were so attractive in 2008 that that was an example of inefficiency. And, Right now, we just can't find a thing that we uh, we believe is properly priced. I, I wrote a column for Value Walk entitled "Why Warren Buffett is Sitting on 130 Billion Dollars in Cash," and it looks like Mr. Buffett has reached the same conclusion that everything is just so dear right now that there aren't good opportunities. So that's I don't believe the market's perfectly efficient, and I would strive to to beat it by several percent. But to beat it the way Medallion did the uh, that's, you know, that's absolutely a pipe dream in my view. Yeah, well, I'm going to link uh, your paper here in the show notes as well as the institutional investor column. Is there anything else you'd like to add or tell people where they can find any of your other work? Well, you, uh, the paper I just referenced, I, I do write an occasional column for Value Walk. So if you go to valuewalk.com and do a search for Bradford Cornell, you'll find some of my articles including the one I just mentioned on why Warren Buffett is sitting on 130, I said 128 billion in cash. We really appreciate you coming on, Brad. This was a lot of fun. Okay. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.